so here we go. So previously in Ephesians. So, um, so we, this, our passage today, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 3 and um, verse 14. Our passage begins with this phrase, for this reason, for this reason. And whenever we have a, like a therefore in the Bible, we always ask what's the there, what's the therefore, therefore, right? And for this reason, what is it there? What, why is this here? And so previously in Ephesians, um, we've talked about this, and, and Paul has written this out for us, that, that God has a plan. We looked in, in chapter 1, God has a plan from the foundations of the world, and this, I, this phrase, according to the plan of his will, the purpose of his will, the boule, the, the bulletarian, the counsel of his will. And Paul, he describes this plan as sal- of salvation as this experience, and we talked about the Pauline triad, that, that as we experience salvation, it is an experience of faith, of love, of hope, and of power, Right? So Paul explains that God has this plan from the foundations of the world, and what we will experience out of that plan is this idea of faith and love and hope and the empowerment of the Spirit. We also talked about that Paul is saying that, that, that there's bad news. Like, I'm sorry to say it, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were entangled in the forces of this world. We talked about this, this web. We're in the middle of this web. I don't, you, I don't know if you feel it like I do, but there's this web of interlocking forces in our world that there's a fallenness. There's a, there's a devil out there. There are sons of disobedience. There's a prince of the power of the air, and there's an internal fallenness, and we are, we are caught in this web, and we actually perpetuate this web. And Paul is saying there's, that's bad news, but there's good news. God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy, and he made us alive together with Christ, and he is in the process of untangling us from that web. He's in the process of untangling us and even doing the work within us that moves, that presses down that flesh and makes space for the Spirit. That he begins with at the cross and the enthronement of Jesus, the true King of the world. There's no web of powers. There is a king over all. And that the salvation that he has provided and planned from the foundations of the world is by grace through faith with this awesome byproduct of good works. Salvation is by grace and through faith. And we have been looking at the last two weeks that this salvation is not only for the insiders. It's not only for the people who've been in church for their whole lives, or back in the day of Paul, it's not only been just for the people who've experienced the revelation of God, the people of God, the Jews, the people of Israel. It's not just for them that God from the foundation of the world had planned that the nations would hear this. It doesn't have to be the insiders, it's those who are far off, and that God has to reveal this. I would say God has to reveal this in every generation he has to reveal this, because we all get comfortable, right? Salvation is for people like me. And we get comfortable in that, and God has to reveal this mystery. No, 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 no. It's for those who are far off and not like you. And he revealed that in the coming of Jesus, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the outsiders who are, as he says, without hope and without God in the world. And whoever comes to mind when I say, without hope and without God in the world, salvation is for them. And that this world... As, 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 as the church, 
embraces this new community, this new humanity recreated at the cross, a place where as you come together, where your ethnicity does not qualify you or disqualify you, where your gender does not qualify you or disqualify you, where your socioeconomic status, whether you're rich or poor, does not qualify you or disqualify you, how you vote does not qualify you to be here or disqualify you from being here, how much education you've had does not qualify or disqualify you, no act of shame done by you or done to you can disqualify you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And as the church lives out this story, this plan, the DMV, right? As the church lives out this plan and our church grows to look more like the DMV of all things, it makes it known to the interlocking directorate of powers that Jesus is king and he's coming back to take what belongs to him. Right? Amen, we're done for the day. Right? That is, that's what Paul has been saying up to this point. That's what Paul has been doing up to this point. And that's why as he enters into this, this kind of pivotal passage in the middle of the book, he's going to pivot. He's been talking about this theology and he's going to be moving towards, he's going to next week be talking, moving towards, therefore walk in a manner worthy. Like you've got all this awesome stuff. We've talked about the plan of God. Now it's time to walk in a manner worthy. But before he gets to that, he wants to say, we need to pray. After all this awesome stuff, Jesus is coming He is the king. He is over all things. He can dismantle the interlocking directorate of powers. But before we do that, we've got to pray. And so, as the church lives out this plan, we make this clear, and our passage begins for this reason, and Paul goes to prayer. So, you guys ready? I'm ready. I mean, this is a, this is a significant passage, right? This is, and this passage is, is fantastic. There's a lot of stuff in here, and it's a little bit like a word salad, to be honest. Like sometimes when we do come to the Bible, like you read this, you're like, it's just a lot of phrases put together, but we're going to try to, un- we're going to try to kind of put it, we'll sentence graph it and structure it so we understand what Paul is asking for. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And Paul, just like he begins the book, he says, uh, at the beginning of the book, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he goes to prayer, and he prays for them. And now, after he's just given this grand plan, and this beautiful plan, he's now going to return to prayer, 314. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And he returns to this idea of prayer beginning with the Father. And it says he bows his knee. I was just thinking this last week. I, 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 ne- I rarely talk about me bowing my knees. I talk about bending my knees. Like we don't say, is your knee bowing well? Like how's that going? I, you know, it's, I bend my knees. But what he's doing there, and this is a little bit of a, of a carryover from King James English that the Bible, a lot of times in translations, they don't like to move away from King James English, but this is about bending the knee, and it's actually from Isaiah. The book of Isaiah talks about there is a time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The apostle Paul says that in Philippians chapter 2, and he adds in, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bend and every tongue will confess. And, and um, so Paul is saying that I'm going to I'm gonna go to prayer, and I'm going to go to this posture of 
really of, of submission, of bending the knee, right? And there, there are all kinds of postures of prayer. Um, the, the most common is standing. You stand to pray um, in, the, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're praying. They're both standing. Um, Paul will talk about lifting your arms in prayer. Um, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes face down in prayer. There's times where it talks about sitting in prayer. There's no, there's no one posture that you would take, but Paul is saying, Paul is saying, one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and, and that's going to happen at the end of all days, but you know what's going to happen? I'm going to inaugurate that moment right now. I'm going to go down on my knees because I'm inaugurating something that's going to happen at the end of all time. It's starting today. It's starting now. I'm bowing my knees. I'm bending my knee before the Father. And I, I would just say this. There, there, there is no one better or worse way to pray. There's lots of postures in prayer. And this is just a little aside. And um, finding a good posture in prayer, I do encourage mixing it up in terms of postures and of prayer. Like, and maybe kneeling is a good place to begin mixing that up and starting, if you don't already maybe kneel when you pray, or maybe to stand when you pray, or maybe to, uh, to go on your face when you pray, uh, to do it quietly. And, and so all that to say, that those, that's a posture of prayer. And the thing is, in this whole prayer, it's a bit of a long passage. Tracy read it well. It was very good to hear it. Um, but there's, he actually prays for three things in this passage. There's three things that he prays for. What I want to do is just walk through each of those three things and talk about what it is that he's praying for. I think always when we hear the Apostle Paul pray, we have to imagine, we, we, we have to line it up with the way we pray for people because sometimes I think we don't pray, sometimes I don't think we pray like maybe we should be praying. And again, pray as you can. It's not like, there, I don't want any barriers to pray, but sometimes we're just praying for like, oh, I pray that, you know, Aunt Sally's toe would heal, right? Okay, great. That's a great prayer. That's good. But Paul's not praying that way. And so as we kind of walk through this, we might note that there are some things that we can be praying for, okay, that we can be praying for with people. All right, so here's the first thing. The first thing that he prays for is in 316, and that is that you might be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner self. Look at 316. It says um, uh, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And this idea that he would be, that you would be strengthened in your inner self. Again, these are not ways that we might necessarily talk, but this idea that there's an inner, there's, a, there's kind of a central core of who you are. There's an inner self, an inner person and that that part would be strengthened. And that strength would come by means of the Spirit. And here's the thing. With Paul, as he's been talking about, in light of this interlocking directorate of anti-human and anti-God forces, this web in our world of an overall fallenness, of a personal devil, of the sons of disobedience, people around you that are, that are not acting as God would have you, have them, that's all external to you, right? And you don't have any control over that. That's all, that's all stuff in the world. But there's also an internal fallenness that we all experience, right? There's a, Paul calls it the flesh. And that we note that we have a, a bent 
towards not doing it the way God, not doing it God's way. We have a bent. We come out of the womb with this bent in that direction. And so not only is there, are there these external forces, but there's something, there's this force within us. There's something going on within us that is fallen. And so what God says is, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my spirit in there. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of the external forces with Jesus and his work. King Jesus is going to take care of all that. But I need to go in you, and I need to start doing some stuff in you. And for, for what the Father is saying is, I'm going to take my spirit, and what Paul is praying is what I want to happen is I want the spirit to get in you and to strengthen you because there is going to be this internal tension and turmoil between the spirit and this fallenness that exists within you. Has anybody ever felt the tension? Okay, it's only me. I'm the only person who ever feels that tension. That's okay. It's just going to be for me then this morning, okay? But that, that tension, so what he says is, we've got to send the Spirit in there. Paul says, I want you to be strengthened because there's a lot of things that I'm going to ask of you, like I want you to worship alongside people who are not like you. And the flesh is going to rebel against that. So what I need is I need your inner person to be strengthened by the Spirit. I'm going to ask you to refrain from certain behavior, and that's going to be hard. And so what I need is I need you to be strengthened in the inner person. I need the Spirit in there with power to strengthen you. And in light of this, in light of these forces in the world, I need to start... I need to start in you as ground zero to begin to transform within you, then you, then the world around you, and moving out like a, like a bomb going off and you're ground zero. It's a spirit bomb. Boom. And it's happening within you and it's moving out. That's a bad analogy, but that's the idea. Okay? You are the center and it's moving out. God has said, we're going to transform from the inside out, and it starts in your inner person. And Paul says, I'm going to pray that the Spirit would get in there, and you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner self. Paul's prayer essentially is that God's Spirit would be the strongest controlling factor in their lives. When he prays this prayer, he's praying that God's Spirit would be the strongest controlling factor in their life and behavior. Not the flesh, not the advertisers in the world, not the interlocking director of the powers and the fallenness of all this. The strongest power moving in your life would be God's Spirit and that your behavior would begin to show it, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the first thing that Paul prays for. And again, just, and I'm guilty of this too, like that's not always what my prayers are for people. My prayers are like, we've been praying for physical healing. It's, it's absolutely appropriate to pray for physical healing for people. And God can do that power. God, God's power moves in that way. But there's also the sense that we pray for one another that God, would you send your spirit to strengthen their inner being, that the spirit would be the strongest controlling factor in their life. That's a good prayer. That's a great prayer. 
And that's a prayer that we would pray for ourselves. That's a prayer we would pray for our family. That's a prayer that we pray for our church, for our elders, for all the people in our church. That's a great thing. That's what Paul is modeling here. As he's thinking about the Ephesians, he's like, what they really need is to be strengthened by the Spirit. All right, so that's the first thing that he prays. So that's number one. Okay, that's the first thing. Um, he said, and he, we said he prays for three things. That's number one. The second thing is in 317. 317. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And the second thing is simply this, that Jesus, the Messiah, would dwell, would live, would reside, would settle down. The word, the word is katoikeo is the word that is used there, and um, that he would do that, whatever that is, he would do that in your heart. And in the ancient world, when people would travel around, and they would come to a place that is habitable, what they would do is they would, there's water, and it's, it's fertile, and the sun, there's some shade and plant life, and they would pitch their tents, and they would plant crops, and eventually if the, pla- if the crops grew over a few generations, they would, they would get rid of the tents, and they'd build houses. And you would get one house, two houses, three houses. And then after that, you would start to see like, well, we need other structures in the city. And we need, we, this, little, this, this, this little settlement has become a village. And we're going to build some, some storehouses. And we're going to build some common areas. And we're going to do these things. And then the settlement, the village becomes a little bit of a city. And it starts to grow. And that is the idea of katoikeo. That you would settle down in a place and you would begin to put roots down and you would begin to build structures. You would begin to celebrate certain things. You would begin to build culture. You would begin to build structures in this community that show that this is a permanent habitation. It's a, a settlement to a village to a city. Paul says, that is what I want Jesus to do in your heart. And I'm going to pray that not only are you strengthened by the Spirit, but that Christ, Jesus, would dwell, reside, settle down, build structures, create culture, change the sensibilities of your heart. That Jesus would dwell in your heart. I heard the gospel when I was um, 14 years old. And um, when I heard the gospel and responded in faith, um, the youth pastor who was there, he, he actually, he was leaving the church at the time. Um, but there was a man in the church, his name was Gary. And um, he grabbed a number of, of kids that had put their faith in Jesus that were recently um, believers, like me, and I was among them. And he gathered us, and over the summer, he met with us. And one of the things he did was he bought us all this little tract, um, this little booklet. You guys might have read it before. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. Anybody? Come on, hands up, everybody. All right, it, it really is a classic. It's a 20th century classic. Um, whether you put your faith, like, look, you need to read this. You need to read it just to be able to say it's like It's like if you're, um, I don't know, it's, it's like this, the rite of passage of, like, li- reading uh, redeeming love, if you're a young lady. Um, uh, Francine Rivers, anybody? Sorry, okay, there we go. Okay, I got you. You guys, you guys know what I'm saying. Reading My Heart's Christ Home is like a rite of passage, I think, in, uh, in the Christian life. And it's this really interesting little book. You can actually get it as a PDF online if you want that, or like spend like two and a half bucks 
and order it from Amazon. I guess you could order like 500 of them at a time. That's the way that kind of runs these days. Um, so you can hand them out. Maybe we should do that here. I'm already talking myself into programmatic decisions here from the stage. Um, but this little book, this little booklet, My Heart Christ Home, it was this devotional book imagining that Jesus was invited into an actual home. And those of you who've read it, I'll, just to jog your memory a little bit, um, and it's, this, it's kind of this, this literalization or allegory even of what it would be like if Jesus was invited into this person's home. And that in the book, they find themselves, this man and Jesus, whom he's invited into his home, they find themselves walking into various rooms in the house. And Jesus has various responses to what's going on in the various rooms in the house. So if my heart is Christ's home, the house, then the idea is this, that they, they walk through, and the first place they go in the book, they go to the study, where the man, um, he, it's where he, what's he, what he fills his mind with, and Jesus looks at the bookshelf, and he's like, he's like, ah, you know, like that, and he's all, hey, why don't you try, like, the Bible? You know, like, it's, it's a little bit like that, and like, maybe, you, um, like, get rid of these, or this is a good one, and, and Jesus is walking through, and he's talking about what, what we fill our minds with, the study, and then he goes to the dining room, and uh, in, the, in the booklet, in the little pamphlet, it talks about this is where the desires, the, the appetites are filled. It doesn't have to be food, but it's like, what are the appetites of our hearts? And so he talks about, this is what I had for dinner, but Jesus says, ah, I'm like, maybe you think about this. And like, the, instead of like going for, uh, for, for glamour or going for glory, that maybe you should go for humility. Or maybe, so the sensibilities, the desires, the things that, that, that I want to fill my life with, they begin to change. And Jesus goes into the living room and he says, look, Jesus says, I love this room. This is an awesome room. I will be here every morning. Every morning, because it's a place of fellowship, it's a place to meet, it's warm, it's a great place, there's a fireplace, and every morning when the man's walking downstairs, Jesus is always in the living room waiting for him. Even when he's in a hurry, rushing out the door, Jesus is still in the, in the living room. And that's, this is where sometimes in the pamphlet there's a little bit of guilt that comes in uh, sometimes. The, anyway, uh, so, so be, be forewarned. And then you go to the rec room, uh, what's happening for entertainment there, the story is the man's going out on a Friday night, and Jesus is like, hey, can I go out with you? He's all, uh, Jesus, I don't think you'd like where, I'm, where we're going. And so Jesus is this, this idea that my heart cries home. Jesus is allowed to go into every room and start to do a little bit of renovation in the room. And then um, one day, Jesus smells something dead in the house, and he tracks the smell to the upstairs closet. And he calls the man, he says, hey, there's something dead in there. And the man is like, yeah, I know, it's something from my old life, and I just don't, I really don't want you to see it. And eventually the man opens the upstairs closet and allows Jesus to do his work on the thing that was dead in his life. And eventually, as the pamphlet comes to a close, the man starts to realize that it's rather than letting Jesus come in and renovate the rooms, what he really needs to do is sign over the deed of the house, right? To let Jesus have his way with the whole thing. And I do think that that is a compelling image of what Paul is praying, that Jesus would come and dwell in our hearts. He would set up residence. He would offer new sensibilities by means of the power of the Spirit. And so these two things are the first two things that Paul is praying for, that you'd be strengthened with power, that the Spirit would be the overwhelming power in your life and behavior, and also that you would make Jesus, you would make your home, your heart, 
the home of Christ where, you could, where Jesus could come and dwell, that Jesus would dwell in their hearts. Now, these two things, for those of you keeping score at home, okay, Paul is praying to who? The Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is, is formed. He prays for what? To empower the Spirit. And then he asks who to make their home in the heart? Christ. Now, if you're, if you're, that's the Trinity, right? This is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is something that, even though the word Trinity is not in the New Testament, this is a great example of the passage that would be, that would set the church on their trajectory of talking about the salvation, salvation, and by the way, salvation is this, salvation is being reconciled to the Father by means of the Son, the work of Jesus, and the empowerment of the Spirit. That is what salvation is. Salvation is being reconciled to the Father by means of the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. It's the Trinity. That you can't talk about Trinitarian theology, you can't talk about salvation without talking about Trinitarian theology. Siri wants to say something to me while I'm doing this. I, I don't know what's going on here. The interlocking directorate is trying to have its way. Okay, Siri, like, right. I don't want Siri to be the overwhelming power, right? Okay, all right, you guys got me. Okay, so the Trinity. So salvation is reconciliation to the Father by means of the Son and the Spirit. By the way, also, um, and I, praying, when we pray, there are times when we pray, there are times in Scripture when we pray to Jesus, like there's a great prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And there are times where we pray to the Spirit, Holy Spirit, come. But the overwhelming amount of times that we see prayer happening in the New Testament, it is prayer to the Father. Because that is the goal of salvation, is the boldness of access into the throne room of the Father. And we get there by means of Jesus and the Spirit. There are times where we address Jesus and the Spirit, but we are, we are on a path to be reconciled to the Father. And of course, in our culture, the father, like, father language is not sometimes, I mean, we have so many examples of bad dads out there. And there aren't, and you might have even experienced that. And even as I talk about God as father, there might be a little bit of like, I don't know, like, how do I do, I, I don't, my dad was not a great dad. Like, I had a great dad. I had a great dad. Not a perfect dad. And it's probably you had maybe on a scale of good to bad, like your dad was somewhere on the scale from good to bad. And maybe you love him, maybe you don't. And the problem, this idea of a father, it, it does say at the beginning that I'm going to pray to the father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And the idea of naming, when God names, God is, it, the idea of fatherhood does not come from your dad. The idea of fatherhood comes from God. Your dad, or me as a dad, we approximate that. But if you want a real father, you got to go to God the Father. And the Son and the Spirit have made a way for you to go to the Father. Go to the Father. And his arms are open wide. This is what we talked about. about this is his sensibility. He's rich in mercy. He has a wealth of grace. So this idea, I don't want you to be thrown off by the idea of father. I want, what I really want you to do, what I want my own kids to do, is I want them to be reparented by God. Like, look, I, I think when Kelly and I had kids, I was like, I was like, look, we are going to screw these kids up big time. 
I mean, let's just be honest. Like, we look back at our families, we're like, ah, maybe there were some things that went wrong. And like, every person, I don't know a single person who does not look back at their family like, yeah, I got a, like, kind of got a little messed up by my family. Like, raise your hand if you got a little messed up by your family. Okay, thank you very much. Here's the deal. At a certain point, you hand your kids off. You say, look, I've taken you as far as I can take you. And now, what I really want is I want you to be, I want God the Father I want his sensibilities to permeate your life. You might be a hill, right? And you might look like the sensibilities of our family and whatever those are. But ultimately what I want you to do, if those things start to fade away and you begin to look more like the Father, like Jesus, yeah, that's the family that I want. That's what we want. And so what I would encourage you to do, if you don't have a great example of a dad, right? I'm going to be reparented by my real father, my true father, the father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. God names what family is and what it means. And Paul says, look, I want you all, you Gentiles, you've had a horrible example. I mean, I mean, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, right? You had a horrible example of what it meant. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand you off to Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're going to reparent you. The Spirit is going to strengthen you in the inner being. The Son is going to come take up residence in your heart. They're going to bring you to the Father. They are literally put in you to take you to the Father. And if you're stubborn, you know what the Father is going to do? He's going to come your direction. This is what salvation is. Regardless of what our dads, our earthly dads, have done or not done to us, we get reparented. In the Trinity, everybody, in the Trinity, we get reparented. We're brought into the love of God. And that's a whole, I mean, uh, spoiler alert, the rest of the passage is about love. That's going to be the third thing that Paul prays for. The first two are that the Spirit and the Son would be in there and they they would take you to the Father. But all of this is going to happen in the context of a rich love that has no end. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, you get off script, you get ahead of yourself. Let's look in um, uh, the third thing, verse 17. So this brings us to the third thing in Paul's prayer, which is to know the love of God. Christ. Look at 317. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Look, Chapter 1 of Ephesians, all the way to chapter 3. You know what this whole thing is about? It's about love. It's about the love of God. Salvation is by grace through faith, right? And and grace, grace and love have a lot of similarities here, but this whole thing is about love. And we can talk, we can talk about, and I, as a a theologian, I, I, I like to talk about the mechanism by which God saves people. I think it's really fascinating, the mechanism by which he does this, that God the Father has a plan. He sends his son to do work on earth and on the cross, this, this mechanism by which we are saved. And then 
after Christ ascends and is seated, that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells and empowers. That's a great mechanism. But the pro- and, and if you're like, if you're like a, a, an architect or an accountant or a lawyer or a, 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 the, a, an engineer in, in this church, like you're cheering, like, I love mechanism. If you're a mechanic, I love mechanics. I love the mechanism of this whole thing. But the only way this works is when it is done in a certain environment. And that environment is love. The mechanism by which God does and works salvation is fascinating. But the only way, the only way it works is love. And I, I'll say this, I know people who can talk day after day about the mechanism by which God has done this. but maybe they lack a little love. And we were just talking about this as we, we kind of, with interns, we process education. And one of the things, as a, as, as a trained theologian, one of the things for me is, yes, we, we do the work of the mechanism of theology, but at the end of the day, what is the proof that, is, that we are correct? The proof that we are correct is that it has made us more Christ-like. And if we get to the end of our theology and it has not made us more Christ-like and more loving, then we have to revisit our theology. It's the ultimate proof of the correctness of what we believe. It's not enough to just be right. What Paul is going to say is that, look, the mechanism is awe-inspiring. I mean, let's face it, the mechanism is amazing. But the way it transforms a life is with love. The only way this work works is when it's done in the environment of love. And we talked briefly about love when we talked about the Pauline triad, faith, hope, and love. And just remember in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he's like, these three remain faith, hope, and love, and these, uh, but the greatest of these is love. And he talks about at the beginning of that passage about, I could speak with the tongue of angels, I could know mysteries of all things, but if I do not have love, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm just a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. It doesn't matter. Love, love is the ultimate test of whether we have met God. And maybe the way, maybe negatively speaking, what love is not, love does not seek its own advantage or its own edification. Positively speaking, love seeks the good, the advantage, the edification of others. We talked about this idea that love, the the love of God is by definition a self-emptying love. The best definition that the Apostle Paul has of love is when he talks about Jesus being in the very image of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. He became human. Not just human, he became a slave. And then he died, not just a death, but death on a cross. And he chose it. It was voluntary self-emptying. That is what love looks like. It seeks the edification of others, not its own advantage. Look to Jesus. This is why the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. 
There's honoring of others. There's trusting of others. There's voluntary self-emptying. There's listening to others, acting on their behalf. There's speaking well of others. This is what love is. Look, if, you, if someone says, I love you, but they don't honor you or they don't trust you, they don't love you. If someone's not going to speak well about you, they don't love you. <laughs> okay? We don't, we don't, again, God is, the, God is love. He doesn't just create love. He is love. And we don't, we don't dare reimagine what love is or redefine what love is just because, well, it's hard to do. And I, you know, we got to, we don't know what, we say, no, this is what God has done. This is what love is. Is my love measuring up to that? And that's fine. We, there are times where we'll say, okay, no, I'm having a hard time loving but we don't make excuses. We don't make excuses. All right. Nothing is done in God's plan without love. Nothing is done in the mechanism, the plan, the work of Jesus, the work of the Spirit. Nothing is done without love. Look at 317. It begins with love. So Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Here's what I think what is super interesting in this passage. I'm just going kind of geek mode here. Um, I originally thought when I was reading in my Bible that this was saying that Paul's prayer, he was praying that they would be rooted and grounded in love. Okay? That's not what it says in Greek. In Greek it says you've already been rooted in love. You've already been grounded in love. It's the, it's the having been rooted and grounded in love, I want you to comprehend what else is there? The length and depth and breadth, the whole thing. You've already been rooted and grounded because you're in God's plan. You're in, he has worked this plan, the work of Jesus, the work on the cross. That is done in love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You've already been rooted and grounded in love. If you put your faith in Jesus because of, the, he, it implies that you've already experienced and been rooted in love. I love the image of being rooted in love. I grew up in Irvine, and we moved there in like 1974. It was like founded in 1971. A lot of the communities around were built um, while I was growing up, and that might be true for some of you here in Orange. Um, but whenever, whenever you have a new community, what you see is you see a lot of trees with wooden stakes next to them, right? Because if you plant a new tree, you've got to put a wooden stake next to it so it stays up. Why? Because the roots aren't deep enough. I, going back to my, my old house that I grew up in, like you go to the park and all these trees that used to have wooden stakes next to them, no stakes anymore, they're just huge. They're like the trees in the courtyard. At one point, those trees probably had little stakes next to them, right? But you go out there now, because they're rooted, that love, they've, they, they figured out how to get their roots down to the place where they can be nourished. And what Paul is saying, look, you're already at the place where you know you go, the roots go down and the roots find the nourishment of love. Love has taken root. It has become the foundation. No fruit comes without the root. No building comes without the foundation. And he says, look, the initial love is awesome. It's transform, life transforming, but it's only the beginning. This idea, you began by being rooted and grounded in love. Look at 3.18 that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And this is what Paul is saying. Everything that happens in God's plan of salvation happens in love, but here's the thing. Once you're in, what you need to do is explore. 
What you need to do is explore. You need to go on an exploration of this love. And the thing is about this exploration, you're like, well, what direction should I go? It doesn't matter. If you go up, if you go down, if you go to the side, whatever side, length, breadth, width, doesn't matter what direction. It is an endless supply of love. And I want you to go explore. I want you to find, I want you to begin to understand, to know the length and the width and the breadth and the depth of his love. Know it. Live it. Give his love. Receive his love. Watch in your community how love works itself out. Feel that love. God demonstrates his own love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I want you to know that love. This is the interesting thing. He says, I want you to know it. I want you to know this love even though the love surpasses understanding. It surpasses knowledge. Know the thing that surpasses knowledge. Here's the thing. Um, So, Jerry Root, one of my teachers um, over my years at Biola, um, Jerry Root used to have this theological debate with a friend, and it was this question about what will be the first thing that we say when we get to heaven, okay? And his friend had this idea that when we get to heaven, the first thing that he'll say, it's a great theological debate. It's a very deep theological debate about what is the first word we will say when we get to heaven. And his friend made the argument that the first thing that we will say when we get to heaven is, oh, and it will go through we'll go through heaven and we it'll be continually this idea of like oh that makes sense like ah ah jerry dr root he disagreed he thought that the first word when he gets to heaven and every subsequent moment will be wow it's a great theological debate isn't it right (laughs) Are you going to be like, oh, or are you going to be like, wow? And his argument was this, based on two attributes of God, that God is eternal and relational, that he is, because he's eternal, he's incomprehensible. It means we will never know everything there is to know about God. But that is, he is relational implies that he is knowable. He's knowable, but we'll never know everything about him. And that's why Jerry said, look, when I go to heaven, it's going to be Wah! And every moment is going to be something new that I'm learning about God and what God has done. Yes, there will be the aha moments, but it will always be something new. That's why we're never going to get bored in heaven. I mean, it is the mysteries of being, are being revealed. The beauty is being revealed. The depth of God's love is being revealed. And when Paul says, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that's what he's talking about. We will never plumb the depths of, the, of what Christ loved. We'll never go down deep enough to get to the bottom of that well. But he says, get in there anyway. Experience it. Know it. It is a love that surpasses knowledge. Doesn't mean it's unknowable. It means you'll never get to the end. And that's our hope. That God has made a plan of salvation and it's not just a, it's not just a nifty mechanism. He has done it in love. And that, it might be clever, the love makes it beautiful. 
And that is Paul's prayer. I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge.